Good morning, church. We are going to study his word. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, as we continue our Connect with God series that we've been in for the last few weeks. And the point of connection of this title of this message is How Do I Forgive? You might think, how does that connect with the reality of our ongoing relationship and connection with God? Because we've been talking about how do I connect with God in scripture? How do I connect with God in prayer? Who is the Holy Spirit? And he connects us and enables us to fellowship with God through the Spirit. And so we can see those connections, but there is a very real connection with forgiveness. Whether we walk in forgiveness or not has a major impact on our relationship with God. So much so that Jesus, for example, in Matthew chapter five says, if you're about to offer a gift or a sacrifice to God and you realize that you've wronged your brother, leave the gift there, go settle up with the person that you've wronged and then come back and offer your sacrifice. In other words, pause your vertical worship and get things right on the horizontal plane. So we see that. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and we learn to pray the Lord's prayer in which we say, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, which is a daily reminder. So we're praying this prayer, right, every day. He's saying, ask for daily bread, right? So it's a daily built-in reminder in prayer that bitterness interrupts the connection. It interrupts the signal, interrupts our relationship with God. It becomes a barrier in our relationship with God. So we need to talk about this. When, when it comes to connecting with God, we have to talk about the reality of forgiveness. And so here in Matthew chapter 18, broadly considered, we're not gonna look at the entire chapter, I wish we had time for that, but we're just gonna look toward the end from verse 21 on. But in the broader context of Matthew 18, you can see this at the top of your notes, Jesus is painting a picture of the community of faith. That's what the whole chapter is about. It's a community discourse, some scholars call it. It's a sermon on life in the community of faith. And so he talks about the concern that we should have toward one another, not causing little ones to stumble, holiness and discipline, church discipline. Then he talks about here in our passage, forgiveness and reconciliation. So we're gonna look at that together beginning in verse 21. Before we read that, you can go ahead and fill in the first point in your notes. It's the problem in a parable. The problem in a parable, and we'll see that as we read our text together. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, Not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven, or some translate it 77. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he didn't have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, much less money. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
100 denarii, he grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me. This should sound familiar. He's using the exact same words. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what, he had take, what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. And this is God's word to us. There is clearly a problem in this text. And the problem is that we can love grace for ourselves while denying it to others. Love getting grace, but not love extending grace. You might even say it this way, that your reaction to being sinned against may be the truest and best indicator of what you really believe about grace. Let me say that again. Your reaction to being sinned against may be the truest, best indicator of what you really believe about grace. And so this whole matter, this story is set up by this interaction where Peter asks a question to Jesus right there in verse 21. Look at it again, verse 21. How many times should we forgive a brother or, or sister, right? How many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times. And so Peter, he was just... He's thinking of probably the rabbinical school of the time, which rabbis are recorded as saying that you can forgive a person who sinned against you as many as three times, but not a fourth time. Don't forgive somebody four times. And so in this scenario, Peter thinks he's being generous. He, he expects an attaboy. He has doubled the number, the standard rate of forgiveness. He's doubled it and added one more for a bonus. And Jesus responds in verse 22 and says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Again, it could be translated 70 times seven, which if you did the math equals 490, or it could be translated 77 times. Either way, it doesn't really matter. The point isn't isn't a certain number, whether it's 77 or 490. Jesus is basically saying, stop counting. That's, That's the idea. He's saying, stop counting and keep forgiving. The person comes and repents, you keep forgiving over and over and over. And then he illustrates that with this story where the first thing that we see is something of number one, the relief of forgiveness. The relief of forgiveness. And so just to review what we just read, so a king is settling up with his servants and, and one of his servants is brought before him and this person owes 10,000 talents. Now this, this story and its, its impact is gonna be lost on us significantly if we don't know what a talent is. So a talent is a, is a weight metric. It's a unit of measuring something's weight, much like we have ounces or we have pounds, and so an ounce of gold isn't as much as a pound of gold, which isn't as much as as a metric ton of gold. So we've got different weight measures, and if you set something coinage on top of that, and it weighs more, and you have to use the unit of of weight that's higher, pound versus ounces, then you're talking about a lot more money. So the, the 
talent was the largest unit available in their time and in their culture. This person was buried 10,000 talents by the standard laborer wages of the time. You'd have to work 20 years to get one talent, to earn one talent, 20 years of full-time labor. So 10,000 talents is an astronomical debt. You're gonna have to live hundreds of lifetimes to be able to pay 10,000 talents back. And so you, you could work 100 years and you got five talents. You've reduced your 10,000 talent debt by five, a whopping five at the end of 100 years of work. And so he's pleading. He is absolutely desperate. He's pleading for patience. He promises I'll pay it all, all back, which is the silliest remark in the entire chapter. He'll never be able to pay this all back, but he's making desperate promises, right? He's just swinging for the fences. I promise I'll pay it all back. And the king responds in a shocking way. The king doesn't give him what he asked, namely time, patience, in order to pay it back. The king just releases him. The king just says, you can go free. He, verse 27, those three phrases, he had compassion on him, released him, and forgave the loan. Can you imagine the relief, the weight that's off your back? You, you get to keep living. Your family's not gonna be all of you indentured servants until the day you die paying back your debts. You get to keep going on living. That's what we expect, just this joy, this relief. But if act one of this story is all about the joy and relief of being forgiven, act two is about the consequences of unforgiveness. Number two, the consequence of unforgiveness. So again, if we're hearing this story as Jesus tells it, virgin ears, never heard it before, we're hearing this story, we expect this man who has just been forgiven this huge sum of money, this huge debt, and we expect that he's gonna run out of the room and he's gonna find the guy who owes him a small, comparatively smaller debt, he's gonna find that guy and he's gonna pass it forward, right? He's gonna, he's gonna pass that blessing on, he's gonna look like Scrooge at the end of a Christmas carol, right? He's gonna be awkwardly hilarious, awkwardly joyful, sort of tripping over his own words, doesn't really know what to say, he wants to hug people, right? That's what we expect to happen as we read this story. We think he's gonna find the guy who he owes and he's gonna say, guess what? I'm going to give you the same forgiveness that I just experienced. The king settled my massive debt, I'm gonna settle up your smaller debt. You're forgiven, it's Christmas, it's your birthday, it's Independence Day, it's Kwanzaa, it's Hanukkah, it's everything, all, it's all, everything you would imagine being good and celebratory, it's all that rolled into one moment, but that is not what ends up happening, right? And Jesus even tells the story in a way that's drawing attention to how this doesn't match, this isn't what you were thinking happened. So there are these, these cadences, three of them, these sequences of words in verse 25 and verse 26, and those three cadences are jumping up and down, they're waving their hands so we can see them. So look, at verse 25, we see the king had compassion, released him, and forgave him, and the newly forgiven man in verse 26 grabbing, screaming, pay me now, right? We see this list of three things and he's not acting in the, the same way that he had just received grace. And so in verse 26, he looked like he was a grace guy, right? 
He looked, I love grace. I am a grace guy. On closer inspection, though, in verse 30, we discover his love for grace stopped at receiving it. He loved getting grace. It was a sort of grace for me, law for you type arrangement. I get the grace, but you, you don't get that. I get that in my relationship with what I owe the king. He's a grace guy when it comes to what he owes the king. He's a lawman when it comes to what others owe him. And how does that end, right? Jesus tells this story in such a way that we see at the end of the parable, the main character walks away unforgiven. His forgiveness is, if you will, revoked. He's unforgiven. Look at verse 32. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. So you appeared repentant, and so I forgave you, right? Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then he's handed over to the jailers. He's handed over to be tortured. He's handed over to judgment. It's a metaphor for judgment. Jesus makes sure we don't miss the application for our own personal lives. The sort of Sobrook Hill section comes right there at the end. In verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to you. He's looking at his disciples. The same thing will happen to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. The point there, because we could really mistake that and read this in a way that doesn't match the rest of the New Testament. So the point there isn't to suggest that forgiveness is, is a work by which we earn our salvation or a work by which we keep our salvation. No, the point is to show a kind of gospel logic, a kind of gospel logic. In other words, forgiven people are forgiving people. For example, what Jesus says in another place in the gospels, when he says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. It's the outflow of a person who grasps what they've been forgiven. He who has been forgiven much loves much. There's this outflow of forgiveness that comes out of the person who's truly been forgiven. You come to the end of this passage and you realize it's, this passage is about forgiveness and it does start with Jesus saying, forgive them every time they repent. But this passage is not all love and grace and forgiveness everywhere. In other words, this passage does not cheapen forgiveness. This passage does not promise forgiveness to the unrepentant. Right? The debtors weren't forgiven because they assumed it. They weren't forgiven because they demanded it. They fell face down before the one whom they owed the debt to. And in this story, that is a posture of penitence. It's a posture of sorrow. It's a posture of confession. God, friends, is not blind or indifferent to our sin. He's not blind or indifferent to our rebellion. Jesus is not dismissing what he just said in verse 17 through 20 about the church possibly having to remove from its membership those who refuse to repent. That's this same chapter. They refuse to repent, bring somebody else. They still refuse to repent. They have to leave the church because they're trying to serve two masters and serve two lords and it needs to be clear and they're gonna cause others to stumble. And he said the one who causes someone to stumble earlier in this same chapter should tie a millstone around their neck and be plunged into the sea. It's, it's worse than anything. So it matters to God. Jesus isn't saying that, that sin, while fully forgiven, doesn't have consequences. It does. You think about this. So the student, 
who confesses to the teacher after the test has been taken and turned in and the student confesses, I had the answers under the desk the whole time. Right? That's the reason why I aced the test. That student can be fully forgiven and still flunk the test, right? It's not like you're forgiven and the A is gonna stay there. It's like you're, you're forgiven but you flunked the test. <laughs> it's a consequence, right? This same Jesus who talks about sin, the sin of unforgiveness, will in the next chapter, chapter 19, verse nine, say it's permissible to divorce one's spouse due to sexual immorality. This is in the same passage. Chapter 18 is followed by chapter 19, and Jesus is not contradicting himself. So there's a way in which we need to understand and nuance what is forgiveness like. So hold your finger here and turn over to Luke chapter 17. Don't lose your place here. Turn to Luke chapter 17. So Luke 17 is Luke's parallel account to Matthew chapter 18. It will sound familiar. Doesn't go into the same degree of detail, but it will hearken to the same stories and themes. Luke chapter 17, here's, here's Jesus beginning in verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And now he's talking about the same thing Matthew records in chapter 18. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard, listen to this, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So these are complementary passages, parallel passages. If he comes back to you many times saying, I repent, forgive him over and over. Our, our friend Ray Ortland, I think is really helpful here. He writes this, I'll read it to you. When we've been sinned against, real forgiveness should flow out to the offender at two levels. First, internally within the thoughts of our own hearts, we should forgive the offender unconditionally and immediately. That is to say, let go of bitterness. Don't hold on to that, don't nurse it or water a root of bitterness. So that is extremely difficult, he says, but it is how God forgives us. So we know that radical forgiveness is right. Not easy, but right. Second, externally in our relationship with the offender, we should follow the path the Lord gave us in Luke 17, three. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Forgiveness ultimately is aimed at reconciliation. It wants these two parties to be able to join hands, and it takes two to reconcile, not one. It takes two to reconcile. So if someone hurts you, whether that's intentionally or they hurt you even accidentally, you can name that. that Jesus doesn't take that away and say, you know, don't, you're not allowed to even say it or even name it. You can call it out. You can say that was wrong for meaningful reconciliation to take place. There must be repentance for the wrong that was done. That's a part of what reconciliation looks like. That's why Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 12, insofar as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. What does that mean? It means insofar as it depends on you, but you can't make this happen by yourself. Real reconciliation requires two parties to come together. So having said that, 
Clearly the Bible doesn't give anyone any permission to be bitter, to hold a grudge, to act out in vengeance. Clearly, Romans 12 talks about that. That is sinful and that is destructive. Author Frederick Buechner, he powerfully describes this. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. There's a lot to that, right? He says, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you were wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger, bitterness, malice, it destroys us. Author Anne Lamott says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for someone else to die. If some of you have known tremendous pain. I was talking with a, a friend this week on Wednesday, finding out more about his story. We kind of hadn't gone there yet. We've known each other, but we hadn't really fully shared our stories. And I was hearing his story, and he reached over behind his desk, and he pulled out a picture of the house that he grew up in, and he pointed to the room in the front on the left-hand side, and he said, behind that window, horrible things were done to me. And he said that his father was a racist and told him to hate black people. He said he told me to hate. He didn't say black people, but he said hate them. His mother was abusive in ways that I won't even describe. She was a Wiccan, and so she would call for demons. She called them orbs. He said behind that window, horrible, horrible things happened to me. And then he said years later, behind that same window in that same room, I bowed my knee to Christ and I gave him total control. He told the story of God's redemption despite the brokenness that he had experienced. But you could see, even while he was telling me the story, you could see the, the beauty of the redemption, but you could see the pain was still there. Tears were rolling down his cheeks as he told me his story. Look, this is not an easy passage to live out. Don't domesticate Matthew 18. This is incredibly difficult, right? This makes us freshly aware of how impossible, really, I'm choosing that word on purpose, how impossible it is to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. That's why we began this whole series by saying, who is the Holy Spirit? We have to have God residing in us, working within us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, transforming us. This is why we must never leave the gospel behind. We need the resources of good news to stand us up in the wind. We need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves, which, which brings us from the problem in a parable to second, the solution in the gospel. The solution in the gospel. When we meet this man who is faced by a debt that he can never pay back, we're supposed to think of another story. We're supposed to remember our own story. The Apostle Paul tells my testimony. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, if you put your trust in him and repented of your sins, this is your story. I'm gonna personalize it. This is Ephesians chapter two. Here's my story. Look, this really happened. 
I was dead in my trespasses and sins in which I previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. I too also previously lived among them in my fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of my flesh and thoughts. And I was by nature a child under wrath as the others were also. But God... who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for me, made me alive with Christ even though I was dead in trespasses. That is my story. I'm supposed to remember that story. I'm supposed to remember the chains that I was dragging behind me before I met Christ. And that's meant to make a difference in the way that I treat other sinners. This points in your notes. The way we respond to being sinned against is a true reflection of our appreciation of God's grace. Put it this way. I'll never be a forgiver if I don't get the gospel. I'll never be a forgiver until I understand the gospel, until I understand that story in Luke chapter 15. That's my story. It's a story of God the Father's love for us, for prodigal sons. God is the lovesick father in Luke chapter 15 and his son has spoiled the inheritance and now here he comes back. He's got, onlookers would say, he has the audacity. He has the audacity after spoiling the inheritance to try to walk back home what does he expect? Right, but while the sun is still a long way off and he probably stunk to high heaven, if the father was downwind, he could smell him coming and he was drenched in his shame. And while he's a long way off, the father sees him and starts trucking toward his boy, running so fast. And he goes and he embraces him in a ring and a robe and a kiss and a welcome home son. That's, that's the story of the gospel. Well, there may be some people in here who've never bowed your knee to Christ. And th- this might be your day to come home. To hear the Father calling you to come home. Don't worry about your shame. Don't worry about your guilt. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to bear it in your place. You trust in him. Turn from sin. Embrace him. Know that Jesus' work on your behalf on the cross is enough to settle your debts and more, all the debts that you owe to a holy God. But look, when it comes to walking in forgiveness as believers, when we're thinking of the gospel, we're clear on what it is that we deserve. Read Psalm 51, he comes into the door and he says, have mercy on me, oh God, I don't need justice. I need mercy, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sins. And that prepares us to extend the same grace that we've received from God. Paul says, forgive one another as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the same grace you've experienced should be flowing out toward others. I read a story about a husband who had been unfaithful to his wife and he told his best friend before he told his wife and he said, I want you to hold me accountable. I'm gonna tell her tonight. And he said, I don't know what she's gonna do. She's probably gonna scratch my eyes out. She is gonna be, and he said, I'll understand if she does. And he sat down on the couch that night and he told her his foolishness, his stupidity, his 
unfaithfulness. He didn't add any ifs, buts, or maybes, any reasons or rationale. He confessed his sin to his wife and he sat there through a long silence and she said, you've hurt me so much. And she said, I'm so angry with you. And she said, but you're my husband and we'll get through this. And she leaned over and kissed him on the forehead and he said, that kiss changed my life. We're changed by the kiss of God. The mercy, the grace of God. We confess our sins and we wait for the heat to come and he leans over and kisses us with grace. That's a story that'll change us, right? Corey Ten Boom, maybe many of you know the story, a Christian in Holland and she hid Jews. They hid Jews in their home until they were discovered and sent to the death camps. Her, her father died, her sister died. And after the war, she went around speaking uh, about Christian love and forgiveness until it happened. The thing that she knew might happen one day and it happened one day. She was speaking at a church service in Munich and she saw a former SS officer and she recognized him. He was the one standing guard at the shower room door at Ravensbrück. She remembered his face. She would never forget it. She remembered him, that guy standing there over her sister and forcing her to remove her clothes. She remembered her sister Betsy's, she said, pain-blanched face as the soldiers, and he was there, mocked her and laughed at her. And that night, that man was in the room listening to her speak. And as the church emptied, he came up and his face was beaming. And he said this, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, to think as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. And his hand, she said, was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. And she said, anger and violence were boiling inside of her. She said, I looked at his hand, I felt nothing. I felt no charity, I felt no warmth, nothing. And she said, I tried to raise my hand and I couldn't. And she said, I silently prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And this is what she writes. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Church, why do we sing the gospel every Sunday? Now this morning we sang these words, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? We're reminding ourselves, a holy God sent his only son to rescue sinners from our shame, our guilt before him. We don't sing the gospel every Sunday because Christian songwriters lack thematic diversity. 
Guys, could you give us something else to sing? You just keep writing songs about the cross, songs about forgiveness. No, we sing the gospel so we can keep breathing. We sing the gospel over our despair to drown out our despair. We sing it to kill my inner Pharisee. We sing it because we need this truth. We sing our way free from guilt and shame and self-destroying bitterness. That's why we sing the gospel. No one should say more readily in prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. No one should love giving grace more than we who have experienced the lavish grace of God. No one should be more ready, more eager to cancel debts than Christians. So how do we put this on? Practically speaking, so five habits of Christians who pursue reconciliation. I wish we had more time to unpack each one of these. You see a resource at the bottom of your page if you want to dive into this more deeply. There's also another book by Chris Braun called Unpacking Forgiveness, and it's excellent as well if you want to dig deeper. So these five. Number one, walk patiently, particularly with the sufferer. Particularly with the sufferer. Sometimes it's not all that clear who the offending party is. It's a complicated mess. But sometimes it is clear who the offending party and who the sufferer or the victim is. I I could tell stories of churches that have learned this lesson the hard way. Friends, I could name them. Churches that have learned this lesson the hard way because they came into a situation where there was abuse and they came in saying at the same time and with the same tone, insisting that the abuser would repent and equally insisting that the abused would forgive, almost as though they were holding a timer over the head of the victim. And the reality was, and they discovered this later, she didn't ask for her whole world to get blown up last Friday night. Everything, everything has changed in her world, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. The Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians 5 about holding on to the weak. That's the point here. If there is a victim to identify, if there is someone who is on the receiving end of suffering, keep that person in mind and handle them with great gentleness. It's an important truth to keep in mind. Number two, absorb some offenses out of sheer grace. Absorb some offenses out of sheer grace. So Paul rebukes the Corinthian believers because they were hauling each other off to court. They were fighting each other in front of a watching world. And he said, this is an embarrassment. He says, wouldn't it have been better for you just to inhale it? Just absorb it. Like every time somebody does you wrong, you gotta drag them off and make them pay for it. Just absorb it. Just inhale some of these things, right? It would have been better, Paul said, if you would have just done that. One of the great graces that we can offer that should be evident in the lives of believers is the ability to to overlook an offense. Just to overlook it, right? When we're snubbed or when we're insulted and we can move on as if it didn't happen. The Bible has a word for that. It's called forbearance. (laughs) It's called long suffering. It's called you don't have to pay every nickel and every dime. Every garden variety sin that you've committed against me doesn't have, to, doesn't have to have a day of reckoning, right? Christian relationships should furnish many opportunities for, for us to receive offenses and let them go. You ever had a friend who's, 
who's like the referee on the football field with his hand on the flag the whole time? Right, a friend who's just a flag on the play. You didn't invite me to the party, right? Flag on the play, there's another insult. You did that yesterday. Flag on the play, you know, it's like always ready. Oh, it's just hand on the flag. You know how, how annoying that is? <laughs> Scripture talks about a drippy faucet. Like, you can't make a friend who's not a sinner. And the moment you befriend somebody, you befriended a sinner. And guess what? They did too. <laughs> if we're gonna get along for more than five minutes, we're gonna have to be capable of just straight up overlooking some offenses that are committed against us. Daily opportunities. We have daily, you'll have some today. Daily opportunities to practice forbearance. Three, respond carefully to sins that must be addressed. Some sins, it would be wrong for you not to address them. It would be wrong for you just to absorb it. Right, so a moment ago, I wasn't talking about enablement of patterns of sin that are destructive. Here I'm talking about patterns of sin that are destructive. So Matthew 18 and other passages in the Bible give us help in a process for how do we address sins that should be confronted, should not just be absorbed, they should be confronted. Galatians chapter six and other passages like it give us insight into the attitude that should characterize us as we address sin. So don't be haughty, go in a spirit of gentleness. Don't be high-minded. It's, it's possible to address sin by a right process, but with a wrong spirit. And conversely, it's possible to address sin with a right spirit, but with a wrong process. And so we need wisdom. And this is why we have God's word. He tells us in his word what shape those things should take. Number four, as one who sins against others, learn how to apologize. So this is when you're the one who's the offending party. As one who sins against others, and we all do, who hasn't? Learn to apologize. You know, you know a lame apology when you hear it, right? <laughs> Sometimes we don't know it's a lame apology when we're the ones offering the lame apology, right? We don't necessarily hear it when it's coming out of our mouths, but we certainly can hear it when it's coming out of theirs when they've sinned against us, but there is such a thing as a lame apology. And there's a way to communicate clearly, I get it, I know what I did, I know how it made you feel, and I want you to know that I know what this felt like. No lame apologies. And so there, these are sometimes called the seven A's of confession. This isn't my stuff. You can get some of this in the Peacemaker. It, it's really, really helpful. So here they are. Seven A's of confession. You want to apologize and do it right? Here's some things to consider. Number one, address everyone involved. All of those who were affected by your sin. Two, avoid if, but, and maybe. Don't let those words show up anywhere when you're apologizing. Don't excuse your wrongs. Don't say, oh, maybe I overreacted. Did you or didn't you? It's not a maybe, right? Don't say sorry, what I said was wrong, but you made me so mad, right? So, so who's, who's really wrong here, right? There's no 
But there's no excuse. This, I'm owning my contribution. Even if you feel it was complicated, I'm owning my contribution and I'm not saying anything. I'm not even suggesting that you had a contribution. I'm owning what I did was wrong. Third, admit specifically. So both attitudes and actions, what you did and how you did it, what the tone of voice was, admit it, own it fully. Don't say clearly I did something wrong and for that I'm sorry. Don't, don't be surprised when that doesn't land in a hug. It's like, is it just this vague fuzziness? fuzziness? Or what's going on? Like, do you really see what went wrong here? Admit specifically the attitudes and the actions. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge the hurt. So express sorrow for what your sin did to them. So take a moment before you apologize, climb into their world and let them know you can finish their sentences. Let, you, let them know, I, I'm imagining how it must have felt to hear that. It must have felt like this. And especially in light of the fact that I did it in front of your friends. And that made it worse. Right? Finish their sentences. Let them know, I get it. I've thought about it. This was wrong. Number five, accept the consequences. So such as making restitution. Or failing the test. And not saying, hey, but I thought we were forgiven. No, you, you failed the test. You cheated on the test. You, you flunked the test. Right? In cases of abuse, for example, forgiveness can and should include the establishment of safe boundaries for emotional and physical safety. Nothing wrong with that. There's a whole lot that's right about that. It's a consequence. Or, or for example, owning and accepting the consequences could mean I understand I have to earn back your trust. This is, this is clean, but I understand I have to earn back trust. Number six, a little more quickly, alter your behavior. So change your attitude and actions by God's grace. Lean into that. And then seven, finally, and it's so important, ask forgiveness. Ask for it. Don't, don't leave it unclear as to where the ball is. Will you forgive me? I've owned up to everything I know how to own up to. Will, will you forgive me? and allows the person to meet you in the middle and to close their hand over yours, which leads to number five, as one who hears an apology. So this is when you're the offended party. Practice the promises of forgiveness. Obviously, this is predicated on the fact that there is a it's a credible, legitimate offer of repentance. As one who hears, practice the promises of forgiveness. So repentance is a way, uh, it's, it's meant to open the way for reconciliation in the relationship. So when someone, someone confesses sin and when someone repents and you say, I forgive you, there are things you're promising them. Objective things. You're not promising to forget because you won't forget it. Let's be realistic. It doesn't mean that suddenly you have a lobotomy and your brain just, I don't even remember. What did you do? It's not that. So don't make promises that are, unrealistic, but there are four promises that you make when you say, I forgive you, and here's what they are. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again to use it against you. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship.
These are the promises of forgiveness. They're not, these are not grounded in feelings. There are actions associated with these things. These are important principles, biblical principles for peacemaking. There's even a kid's version, Peacemaking for Kids. There's a book out there, Peacemaking for Families. And they have a version that you can give to your kids. We reviewed it with our kids when they were really young. Good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. That's what you promise. When you say, I forgive you, my sibling, for stealing my Easter M&Ms again, right? You've repented, you've owned it, it was wrong, we both know. And good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever, right? That's reconciliation, that's you closing your hand over the repentant friend. You cult, look, let me just say finally, cultivating these habits doesn't make this easy, you know, so often you see a five ways to, and, and it gives the wrong impression, as though we're just gonna skip our way through this. This is gonna be impossibly hard. Again, you're gonna need a Holy Spirit to do any of this, even to walk in the direction of these things. But here's the reality. God is at work within us. God is changing us. He's, he's forgiving us glory. He's not only forgiving us, he's helping us to extend that same forgiveness to others by his grace for his glory and for our good and for our joy and for reconciled relationships to, to the glory of his name.